There's an episode of The Dick Van Dyke Show where Rob, Buddy, and Sally are forced to write a nightclub act for the very untalented nephew of a very threatening gangster. They give the kid their best material, but he's a terrible performer and the act is a flop. Now, if that plot line sounds like it would never happen in real life, allow me to introduce you to Keith Brazell. His show business career included a few movies, some TV, illegal kickbacks, possible extortion, probable arson, assault with a deadly weapon, and lots of threats of bodily harm. Along the way, he was involved in the downfall of a major CBS executive, and his last major work was an R-rated nudie movie in the 1970s. One producer once called him George Raft, 1965 style, and he ended his life as a bitter old man who was up the creek without a paddle. I'm starting to think that maybe we should do a potluck thing. Potluck, potluck. The potluck is going really great. A potluck. Seriously. Seriously. This is the Incredible Inman's Pop Culture Potluck. Welcome to the Potluck. I'm David Inman. Keith Brazell, a.k.a. John Brazelli, was born in Elyria, Ohio, a suburb of Cleveland, in 1923. By the time he was 18, he was touring with a band as a singer, drummer, and comic. He served in the Army Air Force during World War II, and after the war, he went to Hollywood. While working at Los Angeles TV station KNXT, Brazell met a fellow named James Aubrey. Aubrey was a rising executive. He grew up in an affluent Chicago family and was schooled at Exeter and Princeton. Brazell was the opposite, from the school of hard knocks. He liked to give the impression that he had extensive mafia connections and claimed that he was the godson of Brooklyn crime boss Joe Profaci. So Aubrey had class, and Brazell had juice with the mob. They formed a mutually advantageous friendship. One CBS executive said, Jim was born a gentleman, and he's working very hard to become a gangster. Aubrey was a notorious womanizer, and at least one story goes that when he broke one woman's arm, a woman with a boyfriend who was a gangster, Brazell intervened to keep the boyfriend from putting out a contract on Aubrey. Both men left KNXT and went their separate ways. Brazell started to get small parts in movies, like T-Men and The Babe Ruth Story. Actress Ida Lupino, beginning a period as a director and producer, cast Brazell in two films, both co-starring Sally Forrest, Not Wanted and Never Fear. Brazell was getting noticed in Hollywood, and he began courting columnists like Hedda Hopper. He showed up for an interview with her wearing miniature Oscar cufflinks. He played a small role in a really good movie, A Place in the Sun with Montgomery Clift and Elizabeth Taylor, and larger roles in not-so-good movies. In Bannerline, made in 1951, the same year as A Place in the Sun, he played a small-town newspaper reporter, again opposite Sally Forrest. The movie is cliched and forgettable, and Brazell wasn't talented enough to make it any better than it was. But his biggest break was yet to come. 
Singer-actor Al Jolson had appeared in the first talking picture, The Jazz Singer, and in 1946, his film biography, The Jolson Story, was one of the year's biggest hits. It even spawned a sequel in 1949. Eddie Cantor was a contemporary of Jolson, beginning on the stage and then becoming one of the country's most beloved comics in movies and on the radio. The producer of The Jolson Story decided it was time to make The Eddie Cantor Story and Keith Brazell got the part. The film was released in 1953, and to promote it, Brazell made a TV appearance on the Colgate Comedy Hour, oozing assurance, but coming up short in all departments that required talent. Uh, as I told you before, uh, about a young gentleman I'm going to have the pleasure of introducing to you now. This is a great pleasure. He's the star of a great motion picture by the name of the Eddie Cantor story. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present to you at this time the great newcomer of show business, Keith Frizzell, everyone. Keith Frizzell. Very happy to be happy. I can be sad. I can be good or I can be bad. It all depends on you. I can be lonely out in the crowd. I can be rich or I can be proud. It all depends on you. And I can make money or spend it, go around singing or rent it. You're to blame, folks. To prepare for the role of Cantor, Brazel had learned Cantor's routines and even bought contact lenses that changed his eyes from blue to brown. But the reviews were scathing. Variety called his performance grotesque, criticizing him for playing Cantor in the same exaggerated way at home as he did on stage. At the premiere, Eddie Cantor himself reportedly said, If that's my life, I didn't live. Brazil tried to make lemonade from lemons by creating a nightclub act that included the song Al Jolson, Eddie Cantor, and Me. He did some work in Las Vegas, hanging out with organized crime types, and he briefly owned a piece of the Flamingo Hotel. A few more film roles followed, but it was clear that Brazel's star was quickly fading. So he turned to television and an old friend, James Aubrey. By the late 1950s, Aubrey had worked his way up to become president of the CBS television network. He was seen as inscrutable and ruthless, sometimes mean just for meanness's sake. Producer-actor John Hausman coined a nickname for him, the Smiling Cobra. Brazel had tried TV, he hosted a game show on ABC and was dumped after the first episode. Then he opened a night spot called the Hollywood Club in New Jersey, and on opening night, Aubrey ordered all CBS executives to attend. One CBS executive recalled the scene to author Jeff Kisseloff. At one table was everybody who counted in decision-making at CBS, and at the other table were all the guys who had just been picked up by the FBI at the mob's big Appalachian conference and had just gotten released from jail. In the back of the room were families at one table and their mistresses at the other. It was fascinating. Keith said to me, I want you to meet my godfather, Joe Profaci. Keith began doing his act, and at some point he pointed to Bill Hyland of CBS and said, If you don't pick up my contract, I'm going to sick Uncle Joe on you. Despite the support from the family, the club wasn't successful. Or maybe it just outlived its usefulness. For whatever reason, eight months later it burned to the ground with six empty gas cans sitting nearby. 
By now it was the early 1960s, and Aubrey's plan was to fill the CBS schedule with light, airy comedies and variety shows. He distrusted any show that seemed sophisticated. When he first heard of the concept for The Dick Van Dyke Show, he told creator Carl Reiner that Rob Petrie should be an insurance salesman instead of a TV writer. The show that perfectly encapsulated Aubrey's idea of what TV should be became one of the network's biggest hits. The Beverly Hillbillies. Aubrey put the Beverly Hillbillies on the schedule over the objections of CBS head William Paley, and when the show became a giant success, Aubrey was seen as infallible. This gave him license to abruptly dump two of the network's biggest stars, Jack Benny and Gary Moore, and keep ordering new shows aimed at six-year-olds and those who thought like six-year-olds. Gilligan's Island, The Munsters, and My Favorite Martian. And again, it worked. During the 1963-64 TV season, 14 of the top 15 shows in prime time were on CBS. Bonanza was the lone exception for NBC. Brazil produced and starred in a pilot for CBS, but it was never seen and the show ran $400,000 over budget. But it was the beginning of a business relationship between Brazil and Aubrey, one that would lead to Aubrey's ouster from CBS and, for all practical purposes, the end of Brazil's career. During the summers of 1962 and 63, Brazil hosted a variety show on CBS. It was a limited-run series designed to fill space until the fall programming began again. Greg Garrison was hired to produce the show. He'd worked with everyone from Kate Smith to Sid Caesar, and he would spend much of the 1960s and 70s producing Dean Martin's variety show. But working with Brazil was something else entirely. One night, Garrison had to pull Brazil out of a bar to get him to the studio. Brazil didn't like that, and while the show was going on, former heavyweight champion Rocky Graziano approached Garrison and asked him about what had happened. Garrison asked why he wanted to know, and Graziano replied, He's got a thing going for you. They're going to knock you off tonight. After the show, Graziano took Garrison to his hotel room for protection. Then he got on the phone with Brazil and told him to cancel the hit. On the CBS schedule for 1964-65 were three new shows from an outfit no one had ever heard of called Richelieu Productions. One was a sitcom with the most 1964-ish theme song ever. It was called The Kara Williams Show, and it was about a Lucy Ricardo type running amok in a large corporation. Then there was another sitcom called The Baileys of Balboa, and an hour-long drama, The Reporter. The shows were bought virtually sight unseen. There were no pilots filmed, an almost unheard of practice in network TV at the time. I probably don't have to tell you who the man was behind Rishi Lu Productions. The reporter was filmed on location in New York City, and Brazil moved his operations there. He outfitted the show's main set with equipment from the old Daily Mirror newsroom. He bought a townhouse on the Upper East Side. I'm the most confident man you've ever met, Brazil told one columnist. I have three shows on the air. Next season, I'll have five. None of them will fail. 
Rumors flew about why Aubrey bought Brazel's shows, including the rumor about Brazel stopping a mafia hit on Aubrey. Another possible reason was just plain money. Brazel's shows all had the habit of running grossly over budget, and the word kickback began popping up in connection with Aubrey. The Richelieu production shows bombed in the ratings. The reporter was canceled after three months, and the other two sitcoms barely made it through one season. Meanwhile, an investigation of Aubrey's finances found that Richelieu Productions was providing a chauffeur-driven car for Aubrey, for those private outings when he didn't want to use his CBS-provided limo. It was also discovered that Aubrey's apartment was paid for by Filmways, the company that produced the Beverly Hillbillies and Green Acres. The scandal grew, and to make matters worse, CBS shows were slipping in the ratings. Aubrey didn't have that many fans to begin with, and he was suddenly on thin ice. In February 1965, spurred by a lawsuit filed by a CBS stockholder, Aubrey was let go from CBS, and Brazil's TV producing career was over. A bitter Brazil next turned his talents, you should pardon the expression, to writing. His first novel was called The Cannibals, with the C, B, and S capitalized in the title. It was a thinly disguised story about hard-working genius producer Joey Bertel, the same initials as Brazil's real name, John Brazelli, and ruthless network head Jonathan Bingham. Bertel did everything for the network head, from pimping to blackmail to working with the mob to kill a nosy reporter, and got nothing in return. The Cannibals was a sign that the famous Brazel-Aubrey bromance had ended. A couple of years later, Brazel released another novel, The Barracudas, with more thinly-veiled stories about show business figures who had turned their backs on Brazel. That was becoming his stock and trade, with Brazel always cast as the tragic victim. He also continued to tout his mob connections. When he was asked about them for a 1969 interview, he said, let's put it this way, I wouldn't tell you if I did. In 1971, Brazel's ex-wife sued him for support of their two daughters. That same year, he got into a fight in a Hollywood bar that resulted in Brazel shooting a man with a 38 pistol, just missing his heart. Brazel was found guilty of criminal assault and given three years probation. In 1972 came a walk-on part in a Jim Brown movie, Black Gun, and in 1974 he was hired to write, direct, compose, choreograph, and act in a skin flick called If You Don't Stop It, You'll Go Blind. For all that work, he was going to be paid $3,500 and a piece of the film's profits. His real windfall came when the lighting fixture fell on him on the set, knocking him unconscious and he filed a $50,000 personal injury suit. As far as we know, there was never a Keith Brazell james Aubrey reunion special. Aubrey failed upward. He went from being the hated head of CBS to the hated head of MGM, where he oversaw the sale of the studio's famous backlot and warehouses full of iconic costumes. After that, Aubrey became an independent producer. His best-known work from that time was a great example of the kind of empty-headed programming he believed in. It was a 1979 TV movie about the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders. At about the same time, Brazel had developed cirrhosis of the liver, 
and was in and out of hospitals. He'd make the occasional personal appearance for a steadily dwindling crowd. And finally, on July 7, 1981, he died of liver failure at age 58. As for Aubrey, he died in 1994 at age 75. In a 1986 interview, he defended his business style. I've been the screwer and the screwee, and I know which is better. It's better to be the screwer, and it's very difficult to do that with honesty, but it's how I prefer to be treated. After Brazel passed away, a friend of his from his Las Vegas days said, It was like he worshipped himself, set up idols of himself. He was never alone as long as he had Keith Brazel. As for Aubrey, his tombstone read, A Man Among Men. Maybe Keith Brazell and James Aubrey weren't so different after all. The Incredible Inman's Pop Culture Potluck is written, edited, produced, and narrated by me, David Inman. I also clean up afterwards. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing to us on iTunes and rating us. Also, please visit the Incredible Inman Facebook page, and you can hear other podcast episodes at IncredibleInman.com. See you later.